Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 160. We'll continue in the Psalms with a brief summary of chapters 28 through 31 and follow with some thoughts about outside influences. Psalm 28 could be best summarized by anyone who has been watching enough news in the past two years as follows. It would be greatly appreciated if you could simply punish the wicked. Thank you. Quote, pay them back for their acts and for the evil of their schemings, their handiwork. Give them back in kind. Pay back what is coming to them. Lock her up. That's right. Yes, that's right. Psalm 29 is also known as Shira HaKavod, the song of glory or honor. Imagine the scene. Up in heaven, the royal court all assembled, including Bnei Elim, the sons of God, as they sing, their voices like that of God sweeping over the waters, thundering in glory, rising in, and majesty breaking cedars with its power. Quote, and he makes Lebanon dance like a calf, Sirion like a young wild ox. The Lord's voice hews flames of fire. The desert quakes, the forests quiver. And then we return to the palace where God sits on the throne and regards the poet's request. Quote, may the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. If the imagery is familiar, it's because in most congregations, this psalm is sung triumphantly as the Torah scroll is processed back to the ark at the end of the Shabbat morning service. Psalm 30 takes us from the sublime to the precarious where the poet hangs by a hair over the precipice. And yet, quote, I shall exalt you, Lord, for you drew me up and you gave no joy to my enemies. Lord, my God, I cried to you and you healed me. Lord, you brought me up from Sheol, gave me life from those gone down to the pit. This experience is even more earth-shaking for the poet because, quote, I thought in my quiet days, never will I stumble. He fell into the trap of complacency, of security, of surety, but he realized soon enough that a life lived does not include only quiet days. Quote, when you hid your face, I was stricken. To you, O Lord, I call, and to the master I plead. And if the pleading goes well, quote, you have turned my dirge to a dance for me, undone my sackcloth and bound me with joy. Psalm 31 builds on this hope that God will protect, that God will provide security and peace. Quote, quick, save me. Be my stronghold of rock, a fort house to rescue me. For you are my crag and my bastion, and for your name's sake, guide me and lead me. Because one does not ask for protection unless threats loom, but it's not clear why the poet feels so endangered. Nonetheless, the poet is confident in God's support. Quote, You did not yield me to my enemy's hand. You set my feet in a wide open place. And as bad as the situation seems to be, the poet describing the lies told against him, the traps laid for him, the shame, the conspiracies, he concludes with a statement of faith, quote, love the Lord, all his faithful steadfastness, the Lord keeps and pays back in good measure the haughty in acts. Be strong and let your heart be firm, all who hope in the Lord. And on that uplifting note, here endeth the lesson. 
I don't know if I've ever discussed this topic in some detail, or any detail for that matter, but the Tanakh was not written in a vacuum. Now, this is a controversial statement to make, as in some circles, the Tanakh is regarded as divinely inspired, and in the case of the Torah, divinely authored from the very first verse of Genesis, at least through the final verse of Deuteronomy. So to talk about the Tanakh as being a text, a living text that emerged from a historic and linguistic context, well, it kind of freaks people out. What you talking about, Kimberly? <laughs> what you talking about, Willis? What you talking about, Mr. D? What you talking about, Adelaide? <laughs> Of the three monotheistic traditions, Judaism and Islam have something definitive to say about the provenance of their holiest books. The Christians, well, they do too, but not not as much. According to Muslim tradition, Muhammad, peace be upon him, received what would become the Quran in a series of revelations over a period of 23 years. He would recite what he received as would his followers, and after immigrating to Medina to form an independent Muslim community, the slow process began of recording these revelations. However, even at the time of the death of Muhammad, peace be upon him, in 632, the Quran did not exist in book form. It would take a decision of the first caliph, Abu Bakr, to collect the recitations and their transcripts in one volume so that it could be preserved. In about 650 CE, the third caliph, Uthman ibn Affan, noticed not only slight differences in pronunciation of the Quran, but slight differences in the wording. He struck a committee, and using Abu Bakr's copy, they prepared what we call Uthman's Codex, the archetypal version of the Quran. In Jewish tradition, Orthodox Jews are alone in maintaining that the Torah came to us from God as a single unitary text in a single moment in time. No other movement in Judaism maintains that the Torah was written by God. Orthodox Jews regard Moses as the bringer of God's Torah, much like the Muslims would later regard the Quran as Muhammad's most important miracle and proof of his prophethood. As for Christians, most Christians regard the collection of books known as the New Testament as divinely inspired, but the origins of the books are ambiguous at best. Now, divinely inspired is not the same as divinely written. Just ask any author whose book was optioned to a filmmaker. The important thing is we all wanted to have that Barton Fink feeling. I mean, I guess we all have that Barton Fink feeling, but since you're Barton Fink, I'm assuming you have it in spades. From 50 through 150 CE, a number of documents began to circulate amongst the churches, including epistles, gospel accounts, memoirs, prophecies, homilies, and collections of teachings. Some of these documents related to the apostles, the followers of Jesus, and originated supposedly with them. Others drew upon the tradition the apostles and ministers of Jesus' message had utilized in their individual missions. Still others represented a summation of the teaching entrusted to a particular church center. Many of these writings were designed to extend, interpret, and apply apostolic teachings to meet the needs of specific Christians in specific locations. So mainline Christian denominations regard the New Testament as including 27 books, but there's no agreement about the order of those books. There are also apocryphal texts, books that were extant existing during this hundred-year period that some Christians regarded as canon, while others did not like Paul's epistle to the Laodicians, or the uh, first and second books of Clement, or the epistle of Barnabas. 
Which is to say that there's also an appreciation that these texts emerged out of the web of texts circulating at the time. Some made the cut, some did not. The same could be said for the Tanakh as a canon. We understand that there are other books, authored by Jews, divinely inspired or not, that didn't make the cut. But here's to me the fascinating thing. Muslims don't pretend that everything in the Quran and later the Hadith or Muslim verbal tradition is exclusive to the Quran. They readily acknowledge the extra-Islamic origins of many of the Quranic narratives. There is a lot of Jewish historical and mythical material in the Quran. Like, for example, the story of Avraham in his father's idol shop. You know, the one where he smashes the smaller ones and blames it on the big one, gets him thrown into a fire, but he miraculously doesn't get burned up. The Quran's account of the story of Cain and Hevel is also an amalgam of Torah, Midrash, and Mishnah. There are also allusions to the New Testament and apocryphal Christian sources too. Christian texts also allude and quote regularly from the Tanakh. That's kind of the point. They were demonstrating that their canon as sequel was better than the original. This is not the case with the Tanakh. Traditional Jews assert, I guess, maybe I'm misinterpreting, misrepresenting, they assert that the Tanakh, but the Torah especially, is a self-referring, hermetically sealed system, composed and canonized without any seeming outside influence. Kind of like the internet in China behind the Great Firewall. So if we circle back to Psalm 29, one of the most renowned Bible scholars of our age, Robert Alter, sees the Bnei Elim, reference, the sons of God, reference. But there are other spots of the Tanakh that make a similar reference, like Genesis, where we find them referred to as Bnei Elohim, the sons of God. He acknowledges that this reference in Psalm 29 might encourage biblical scholars to see the psalm as, quote, a translation or close adaptation of a Canaanite psalm. Alter does not number himself as one of those scholars, but he lays out the evidence. Number one, there is the claim that in the original text, it was Baal, the thunder god, not Yahweh, God, who imposed his awesome voice over the whole world. Number two, there are parallels to certain wordings in Psalm 29 with Ugaritic poetry, specifically the one cache of Syrio-Palestinian poetry that archaeologists have dug up that seems to predate the Tanakh by several centuries. Number three, There is also linguistic and prosodic evidence. I had to look up what prosodic means. The Handy Dictionary app in my laptop defines it as describing the patterns of rhythm and sound used in poetry. Now, as I said, Alter doesn't count himself among the scholars who think that Psalm 29 is an adaptation, that this song of God, like the sons of God, is an adaptation of a lost Canaanite work. He doesn't think that. But, I mean, I don't know if I kind of do, but... I don't think it's a huge leap to say that the poet would have known Canaanite poetry, much like a poet today would be familiar with the poetry of Milton, or Milton being familiar with the Aeneid and the Iliad, or Nirvana being familiar with the Sex Pistols. Would it have also been a huge leap to say that the biblical poets would have used images, phrasing, and even some mythological elements from earlier traditions? especially if they knew that their audiences were familiar with those images, phrasings, and mythological elements. Indeed, 
it would be probable that the biblical poets looked to their antecedents for poetic models and a repertoire of devices and themes. But would they do the old find and replace, or would they go deeper and create monotheistic Jewish works out of those polytheistic non-Jewish works, all the while using the frames of those polytheistic and non-Jewish poems? Maybe, probably, possibly. How else do you understand the source of the image of God's royal entourage on high, his famalia, as medieval commentator Rashi calls them? And how else do you understand that Rashi used the word famalia, a Latin term that entered Hebrew during the time of the Roman Empire? For me, it's really not that hard. But I could see why folks today are very uncomfortable thinking of Jewish texts and traditions once as these bastions with these iron gates being open for anyone to come in and anyone to exit. I mean, you know, you kind of want to have a, you know, a sense of these things. Who's coming? Who's going? You know, it's just, it could be so messy and chaotic. Posing problems that would cross a rabbi's eyes. And we can't have, you know, chaos and mess in our nice, orderly tradition, can we? If you like what we hear today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently, it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 161 when we continue in Psalms with chapters 32 through 35.